0: Welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. Not just another episode. This is the 100th episode. If you would have told me in the beginning of 2020, I would be recording 100 plus episodes of a podcast, I would have never believed it. But here we are, pandemic later, and I am happy to introduce today's very special guest, Rand Fishkin. He is the founder of several companies, including Moz and now SparkToro. He is also the best-selling author of a book, it's a must-read, called Lost and Founder. If you're not following him on Twitter, you are really, really missing out, major FOMO. So I highly recommend you go ahead and follow Rand wherever it makes sense, and also check out this episode where we talk about the evolution, the revolution of social media, SEO, where we stand today, what we hate about it, and what we love about it, and where it possibly is going, if anywhere. Welcome, Rand. Welcome, everybody, to the 100th episode of Social PR Secrets. I can't even believe it. Um, We just started this during the pandemic and somehow launched with 50 episodes, and now we're at episode 100. And I'm very happy to have my guest, Rand Fishkin. Hey, Rand, how are you?
1: Hi, Lisa. Good. Congratulations, by the way. 100 episodes is incredible. That's amazing. Thanks.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Um, My assistant, Kelsey, left me this note on my desk, so I just had to show it off (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the reason why I really thought it would be very special if you would be the guest today is because I'm pretty sure you're one of the first people that I started following in the industry on Twitter and Facebook. And it was when the community was a lot smaller than it is now. And I was in traditional PR and, you know, kind of pivoting. I didn't know I was pivoting, but pivoting into search and social and mixing that into the whole PR realm. And you were um, at that time, you didn't know that you were creating this, what ended up being kind of a, kind of a big deal. So um, (laughs) that was in 2004, correct? That you started, yeah, SEOmoz.
1: Uh, yeah, I, as a blog in 03 and then a business in 04. That's right.
0: <clears throat> yeah. So I don't really know how or why you started. I know when you started. I know when I started following you. But how did that, how did you even get into it?
1: Oh, um, I mean, originally we were you know, a web design company and subcontracting SEO. And then we stopped being able to afford paying our subcontractors. And so we'd committed to the work. We couldn't pay our subcontractors. And so it was basically, a, okay, Rand, you have to do the work. Um, and SEO Moz was essentially a, a blog where I shared what I was learning and trying in SEO. So it was not, there was no um, particular content strategy around it or business strategy. It was more of a Hey, maybe if I force myself to blog every night about this, I'll get better at it and I'll learn more. You know, Twitter, Facebook, these communities didn't exist, right? So blog comments were kind of the only way to, um, and and the early SEO forums, those were really ways to have conversations with your fellow practitioners. And Moz ended up being that for me.
0: Yes. Yes. And it turned into, um, a bigger deal than that. And one of the things that I thought was so cool when I was just doing a little bit of research is that, um, you know, when I started out and when you started out with, with Moz and, um, you know, that was at the same time that Mashable was coming onto the scene and you were actually before Mashable. Mashable started in 2005. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's weird. I mean, Moz is like a, it's a pre-Facebook business. It's a pre-Twitter business. Um, you know there was there was google and microsoft and i think early linkedin but not much else
0: yeah yeah so i want to talk about just kind of the the how digital pr has kind of like gone into all of these phases but also talk about kind of the transition that's happened in the industry and in the business and i want to start with your transparency because i think that you just deserve a lot of credit and you are where you are today because you've been so amazingly transparent and authentic. And that's, you know, that underlines success. And I just have to tell you a quick story of your transparency. So I was part of an agency management roundtable back in the day, probably around 2004, 2005 era. Well, for sure around that era, but it started, mm-hmm. you know, pre, and um, we would get together twice a year with um, a moderator who was in charge of basically the mastermind and <clears throat> very, talented, experienced, and we all would share what our vision was. And my vision was, you know, that I wanted to get bought by Facebook. I wanted to create this PR, PR agency to get bought by Facebook or Google. And my peers were just like, what are you talking about? Like, that is the craziest, you know, that is so, un, you know, not realistic. That it's like so left field. And we would have to share our profit and loss statements and sales reports. And, you know, it was in this, you know, coveted, like, you know, secret boardroom. But it was—I don't know if you remember this—but you were sharing your profit and loss statements with Moz, like online, like, yeah. and I—I w- I brought this to them, and I'm like, "I want to be like Moz. Like, this is uh, this is transparent, authentic." And they were just like, "This guy is crazy. Why would he do that?" <laughs> this is what you want to. This is what you're uh, you're aspiring to. I'm like, "This is this is where everything is going." Yeah, and that was just people thought I was crazy.
1: Oh well, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to hear. it. Yeah, it, it's been really exciting to see a lot of early stage companies and software companies and, and agencies and other folks start to adopt that practice, right? Of sharing, whatever it is, right? Profit and loss or revenue numbers or, or, or just um, some level of transparency around how they're actually doing. I, you know, I find it really inspiring. I think it's, um, it's great, especially when folks are willing to do it when revenues are not growing.
0: Right. Like that
1: is, that is true transparency. I, you know, Lisa, to be totally honest, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated that after I left Moz, uh, what was that? 20, I think 2018 was the last year that Moz shared its financials. Maybe it was 2017 because I left in 18. So they they shared the financials for 2017, but not for 2018 and forward. And the company, I mean, I, I was on the board until three days yeah. ago. So big like, announcement this week. Yeah. Right. I was, on, I was on the board until three days ago and yeah, the, the financials aren't bad. I don't know why they're, it's frustrating. You know, I feel, um, I feel sad that I think anytime you create something and you put your heart into it and it feels like it's part of your identity and then it, you know, does things, um, in different ways that you don't necessarily agree with, it's hard, you know, so.
0: Yeah, it is hard, it is hard. And So, you know, looking back from, you know, day one when you started Moz to now this week, you stepped away from being on the the board. Um, What are some some lessons learned, some hard lessons learned that you can share for, you know, agency owners or business owners that maybe just starting out or maybe, you know, kind of where you were at one point, you know, during the whole Moz evolution, revolution?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, that is a huge question. I, yeah. Let's see. I mean, I, you, take it, you
0: know, to agency owners, you know.
1: Yeah. or I mean, in a way, right, Lost and Founder, the, the, the book I wrote is almost exactly that, right? It's just a bunch of, you know, each chapter is kind of a, here's a lesson that I learned from this painful process. I, I think, you know, well, just to drill into one very specific one for, from the agency side, I think there's a lot of, Focus on recurring revenue and software and building product, and I think it 's been over glorified. It is not a bad thing to have services revenue to have to you know bring on clients and to have them uh, fund your growth it 's fine to offer products as well there 's nothing wrong with that, but i think I think service companies have been really sold short by the narrative around. Venture capital and startups and and technology and um, and maligned, honestly. And so, a lot of agency owners, I think, feel this pressure. Like, well, yeah, I have a I have an agency, but can I really be proud of that? And you know, like, is it impressive to build a services business? Yes, that is. Amazing and remarkable. You are helping people. Your, your whole job is helping people achieve their goals and you're doing great work and you have this incredible wealth of experience because you've seen a bunch of different stories instead of just one and your revenue model is often healthier and more sustainable uh, and more able to grow profitably without outside investment and dilution in your ownership and having the company potentially taken away from you and you know, losing out on, on whatever future growth it becomes. I would, not, um, I would not be biased by all this media and tech startup culture around product and product only.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, today the opportunity is is just amazing for yeah. any type of digital agency, whether it's, you know, and, in, in you know, the more specialized, the better, or even, you know, being a generalist and kind of bringing in and, you know, the specialists.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think, um, I think there's a very bright future for tons of services companies and agencies. And very frankly, I don't love a model where, I don't love any part of our uh, economy or system where there are a few winners and everybody else is kind of in the tail or a loser or doing nothing, right? So like, you know, I, it kind of I kind of hate the fact that Google is this monopoly in search, right? And, and Facebook is a near monopoly in social and together they're sort of a duopoly over digital advertising. And the, um, I think the innovation that you see suffers because of that. I think the uh, you get greater convenience, but at a, at a very high cost, essentially, you know, all of us advertisers are all bidding against each other on all the same platforms. And so we can't get advantages that come from competition. We don't get as much innovation from those players. We don't see them um, having to invest in their core products as much because they can so they can essentially moat build all day. And when they moat-build, they're usually taking opportunities from the rest of the ecosystem. You can see this with Google, right? Google stealing clicks from Uh, publishers and building more and more products inside their search engine that compete with everything that the rest of us are doing. You can see it with Facebook, you know, dropping organic reach to 0.09%, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And just.
0: I mean, one of the things that I really loved about um, SEO and, and marrying it with public relations is the influence that PR could have on, on search and on SEO and getting exposure and, and, playing up that, that whole organic side of, of public relations. What is your take today on, on SEO? And what are some of the things that you love and hate about it? Um,
1: I mean, I still think the SEO field is, is a very vibrant place. I, let's see, I have been frustrated to see that um, a lot of the statements that Google's representatives make publicly are treated with such acceptance and without skepticism. Um, I think that, you know, historically it's, it's really been shown anybody who's been in the field, you know, 10 plus years can see that, oh, Google said this. Oh, well, well, that was not true. Oh, well, (laughs) they said this. Oh yeah, that, that didn't end up true being true. Well, but they promised they'd do this. Yeah. They broke that promise a year later, right? Like, but but why, why do we continue to, to trust them? Like, I get that they're a big company. And I think that some of the representatives, um, who work there right on the, they're essentially, you know, glorified public relations people, um, who, who work for whatever Google search console or the webmaster team or what have you. But those, um, yeah, those are not reliable trustworthy in your corner sources. I, I think that's an odd thing. And I, it frustrates me because I think that there are some influential people in the search, uh, industry who feel like they have to play politics, right? Like, well, a lot of my influence depends on the relationship that I have with you know, this person at Google, that person at Google. So I don't wanna be seen like, I want people to look and see, oh, look, we had a friendly Twitter conversation. See, I'm in the, no, I know the person at Google. Hey, I, yeah. this, is, uh, this is dangerous, right? Access journalism is a dangerous thing um, and does not lead to the truth. So yes. I would love to see that change. Uh, it also frustrates me that you know, Google is entering so many different markets and competing with so many publishers and search marketers. I, I don't think, you know, I think, look, Google does a pretty decent job. Google's new podcast service is like, it's fine for finding podcasts. I don't think it's actually as good as uh, some of the competitors out there. Like, um, which one call it? I, I absolutely love Listen Notes, that's a great podcast search engine. I think Google is a worse version of that. But if you do a search around most podcasts, Google puts their podcast search up at the top. They didn't have to be the best. They didn't have to get the most links or the best content or the best user experience. No, they can just put themselves at the top. That's pretty infuriating to me, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing is true of Google jobs, Google hotels, Google flights, Google maps,
0: YouTube, every just, there are, hundreds
1: of these now.
0: Well, there's basically was, no opportunity to get on page one of Google because it's all Google yeah. packages.
1: Yeah. I, I, when I looked at the clickstream data um, last year and again in January, it was, you know, Google was getting uh, 12% of all clicks, search clicks, ends in a visit to another Alphabet owned property. Right. Yeah. Come on. Like... Mm-hmm you're stacking the deck. Yes. You know, you you don't need that traffic. The only reason they they need it is because they need to show faster growth than, you know, to Wall Street. It's not not ideal. It's definitely a bad situation to be in. Um, I really do wish that Google were uh, more focused on how do we drive value for consumers and value for publishers as opposed to how do we steal value from publisher that publishers have created and force them into this prisoner's dilemma where, well, you have to let us crawl you because we're Google. What are you gonna do?
0: Uh, right. Can a brand actually live without Google?
1: Yeah, not really.
0: No. Or Facebook.
1: Yeah, I mean Facebook more so you can potentially live without, but but Google, you can't, right? You you won't be discoverable. You, just, uh, you know, they're basically a default utility with a uh, capitalist model, right? So it's, it's sort of like the telephone company back in the day saying like, well, either you let us take 50% of the phone calls that would come to your business or we're not gonna wire your telephone.
0: Right, yeah, that's exactly what it is, exactly. Not great. What about social media, What and, and specifically Facebook?
1: Yeah. Um, gosh, let's see. I can't. I can't decide whether I am. So, I, the one thing that's true in social media is there's at least more competition. Facebook is the dominant entity, no doubt about it. They have the most users, the most activity. But a combination of you know, uh, Reddit and TikTok and Twitter and LinkedIn uh, and um, some emerging you know, social players as well do represent a little bit of a challenge to Facebook's dominance. So there's, there's that, that's, that's really not true in Google's case, right? DuckDuckGo is, you know, less than half a percent of the search market. Uh, Whereas, you know, Hey, Twitter has almost a fifth as many users as, as Facebook does. Right. So different uh, sort of thing there. I think, when it comes to Facebook's activities, I, I am almost tempted to say, in fact, I think it is probably true, Facebook is generally a more negative impact on the world company than Google is. Um, I, don't think, I don't think you can point to many things with Facebook and say, oh, they've really, you know, the, the connections that Facebook has made make the world a better place. Whereas a lot of things that Google does do make the world better. Um, I, I don't think that's uh, an arguable point. Yes. So yeah, on the whole, you know, as far as, as ethics goes, I, I'm um, a little more in Google's corner than I am in Facebook's, but at least Facebook has competition. That's a good thing. As far as for marketers, I think that the true reality of Facebook um, and you know, Lisa, you can feel free to disagree, but I think, I think the reality of Facebook is that it's become a pay-to-play platform Unless you are seeking a very specific kind of engagement, um, often around either very personal topics or topics that have um, high emotional investment and high conflict and disagreement. So, you know, politics and social issues flourish on Facebook. Obviously, misinformation flourishes. Facebook's taking some steps, right? I think, was it yesterday? They finally said, you can't, uh, you, you can't post Holocaust denialism content, um, although other genocides, you're welcome to deny those on our platform, which was a very odd statement. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> you wanna deny the Rwandan genocide? You go for it. You wanna deci- deny Native American genocide? That's fine with us. But the Jewish genocide in, in Germany in the 1940s, that one is off. No. What? really weird. What a a strange statement. Um, and I think Twitter followed in their footsteps today, which I was, I was glad to see at least that, right. They, uh, Facebook did remove QAnon last week, right. So they, they banned it from the platform. That's a nice move to see. Um, I think that has, has hurt a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of families. Oh, Um, yes. So yeah,
0: they're, they're, yeah,
1: making some strides there, but you can sort of feel what type of content resonates on Facebook and draws attention and engagement. And then, you know, a lot of the business content, which marketers want to do, like, oh, my restaurant is offering these specials. Oh, my digital marketing agency is doing this, you know, promotional piece. That type of stuff should be things that we would see through Facebook if we're interested but we really don't because of how the algorithm prioritizes, newsfeed algorithm prioritizes content um, and and how it knows to get our engagement. So I think this is just a model problem, right? Fundamentally at the algorithmic level, when you design systems to promote addiction and engagement over sort of healthy behavior, you're gonna get more ad dollars potentially out of it in the short term but you build up a very negative brand for yourself in the long term i think facebook's going to have to reckon with that over its next decade of life
0: yeah i mean not just facebook but you know all of the social networks snapchat Absolutely. and and twitter i mean they've they're you know hiring these engineers to come in and and basically Program you to be addicted to the noises and the buttons and the emojis and, and, you know, you want more and more and more. And it's, I mean, that is definitely one thing that I've seen and, you know, also been personally impacted by is just how digital can, you know, completely cause anxiety, depression. And, um, I mean, lots of problems, lots of mental issues that when it first came out, I was, you know, you would have never thought that, but it's just so it, it can take you over and yeah very um, innocently, you know, and, and not purposely, but it's, it's hard to avoid, because especially now with the pandemic, like everybody's wired to, to everything, because you have to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what, what other types of engagement really exists the last nine months, except for digital engagement, um, as, as evidenced by our phone call right now?
0: Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, and so that, um, you know, that actually prompted me to write Digital Detox Secrets, because through my experience of working in digital and working in social media and being forced to, you know, as a professional, and I'd like it just be in front of the computer. And then on the personal side, it's like, well, that's kind of, you know, the way things are happening now that it um, you know, I saw it take down my daughter. I saw it take down me in some ways, work-wise. And um, I discovered, you know, I kind of threw myself into getting certified for um, as a yoga yoga instructor, just for personal development. And just to, kind of detach myself yeah. from the the digital side of our lives.
1: I think that's, I think that's wonderful. And so, so wise. I, you know, I, I really do appreciate work like that to try and help folks um, get a broader perspective and um, embrace change around their own personal habits. And at the same time, I, You know um, as much as i i love that and support it i also am not someone who's a big believer in um change from an individual personal personal responsibility level i think that's wonderful for an individual person right if you and i are chatting and i'm like oh yes lisa like talk to me about that i want to get better at it but i think in some ways the the conversations around personal responsibility removes the organizational and systemic responsibility from Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, what have you, those organizations have a massive responsibility to the society that helped create them, that funds them to be better, right? To redesign their systems uh, to support and amplify and help create a healthier society around them. Asking individual you know, asking Facebook's 1.3 billion users to take individual responsibility for their behavior. We, we know from, you know, thousands of years of human history, that's not how p- people work. People yeah. are systems driven and they react, you know, uh, global behavior, right? And, and group behavior reacts to the situation that it's in. So let's design good behavioral systems. Um, I guess we can do both, right? Yeah. We can encourage individual people like you are, with digital detox where it's like you can help individual people one at a time that's wonderful and then we have to also you know work at the whatever it is government level civics level social level to encourage change from these platforms too
0: yeah well they've been trying they've been making some attempts to, to get better at helping people balance and not get addicted. But I mean, on a scale of one to 10, what would you say? <laughs>
1: yeah, like a, like a two,
0: right? Yeah, I was, I'd say the same, yeah. yeah, a two. No, I mean, I, I do
1: appreciate, right? There's the little things like, um, I think one of, the, one of the more impressive ones to me is the Instagram, you're all done. If like mm-hmm. you scroll, for folks who don't have Instagram, if, you, uh, you know, if you're basically like viewing Instagram on your phone, <laughs> There's Geraldine and I, right? <laughs> and you uh, you scroll down. E- eventually, uh, if you've gone through all the new content that the people you follow have posted and the ads, uh, you will reach not a an infinitely scrolling screen, but rather the bottom that says like you're all done. You've gotten all the updates. I think that's it's those kinds of moves that you know they're willing to sacrifice a little bit of revenue and engagement uh, in exchange for some healthier behavior. I like to see that.
0: I I call that a good PR move more than a, in a real investment in re- taking responsibility. Absolutely, this
1: is it's the two out of ten kind
0: of yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> approach, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it's the um, the statement that they can make, and it's the um, you know it, it's it's definitely not enough, and could be more, but I have to give them a little bit of credit for that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'd like to see. Um, I, I I think you know big changes would be on the what drives algorithmic engagement and looking at things that promote um, essentially healthier behavior among people and more, um, more overall happiness taken away from the platform instead of more addiction and engagement. And I think if you prioritize the machine learning towards that one, you potentially lose out on some advertising revenue. And as you know, the challenge with sort of the late stage capitalism, Wall Street-driven model is—is is, is Facebook ever going to be allowed the? You know, are the executives there ever going to feel like they have the freedom to make that choice uh, and still serve their shareholders?
0: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, we're just talking more on the addiction side of social and digital, but you know, there's also the side of, you know, being um, an entrepreneur, being an owner in this day and age, and depression. And I, there's a chapter in my book on on entrepreneurs, um, CEOs, and, and depression, and how it's, you know, become, you know, more of, I mean, it's just more than it ever has been. And entrepreneurship is actually a very lonely spot, and and which is people on the outside looking and think it's like this glorious spot, right? Um, and I know that you've, you've experienced it, you've written about it and shared you know, some of your experiences, but it's, it's actually a thing with entrepreneurs and put on top of that, the digital side of things and the digital impact of you have to look good, you have to you know, act like everything's fine, not just in front of your, your peers, but also on social. And it's just, those two things together are pretty rough.
1: Yeah. No doubt, no doubt about it. I think there's a, um, you know, I think this is one of the frustrating parts about sort of American business and entrepreneurial culture. And also um, I think there's a bleed over from the association with, with American masculinity, right? This idea of toughness of repressing feelings of uh, and, and even, it's sort of not even just masculinity. I think there's also this idea of adulthood and maturity being a time when you uh, don't express how you feel, right? When you suppress your emotional childlike feelings and you uh, are exclusively this, I don't know, you know, sort of non-emotional robot person, um, In a pro- right? The, the difference between professionalism and, and being human. Um, and these dichotomies are extremely unhealth unhealthy and unhelpful, right I think they bias many of us to do to not give our best work, um, to not bring our whole selves to our jobs when in fact that could have more creative and better results in terms of decision making and emotionally healthy relationships and and healthy conversations and conflict resolution, all the sorts of things that make a team work well together, right? We know from the research that, that psychological safety is the core of what makes a team perform better than the sum of its parts. Um, so that this, this cultural uh, aspect, I think, is actually crumbling around us. I think we are seeing more of an embrace of bring your emotions to work be your whole self at work um, and, and in your personal life, be comfortable with things like um, therapy and giving yourself time off and um, having difficult conversations with the people around you and um, expressing how you truly feel and how other people make you feel. I'm feeling that trend over the last decade. I don't know whether that's just my bubble, but I, I hope it's not. I think there's more and more of that conversation happening everywhere. Uh, yeah. I'm hopeful.
0: I think the pandemic has even made that um, fast forward even more. And one thing that I'm seeing, I was going to ask you, if you're seeing this in the investment community, is that it used to be 10 years ago that um, you know working seven days a week pulling all nighters. The CEO is out on the road 24 seven, you know, that was considered success. That was right. considered a hustler. That's considered, you know, let's go. Now uh, investors want to see a healthy, physically and mentally healthy CEO to invest in and lead a company. And I'm, I'm really seeing that in the circles that I'm in. Is that something that you're seeing on your end?
1: Um, let's see. I'd say it's, it's almost sort of half and half. There's like a, there's a continuing and almost deepening and strengthening culture of, you know, the hustle and, and work harder and, um, you know, that's led by um, influential people uh, in, that, in that movement. I think, you know, Gary Vee has been one of those people who's sort of, you know, all hustle all the time and there are many, many uh, followers of that practice we're i'm not
0: a follower of that
1: i have no idea how this happened but tim ferris like there's kind of a like the sort of cult following that ferris has built which which historically should have been around this like four-hour work week like less work has become a cult of workaholism i don't know how that those two things possibly happen but it, it definitely exists and um so so along with that Fortunately, I'm also seeing a backlash to it, right? You can see folks like um, uh, DHH from, from 37 Signals, Basecamp, right? Like that, that crowd. Um, uh, Lee Fever just published a book called, um, gosh, ooh, what was that? Uh, he's the guy from, um, uh, which one call it? Uh, Common Craft and wrote a book called Big Enough. You know, building um, building a business that scales with your lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think I think that's a, a you know beautiful concept and a beautiful thing. Talking about building companies that are great, not big, um, and we can see that. Uh, Small giants is another book that sort of earlier in the two thousands uh, had that conversation. So I'm I'm feeling it in entrepreneurial world. I think the problem is in venture backed entrepreneurial world. It is still not well-regarded, right? You can see VCs um, on Twitter and on stages and in their blogs and, you know, talking about how, oh yeah, it's fine to build a lifestyle business, but if you want to play with the big boys, if you want to be a real entrepreneur, you know, all this, right, very masculine-centric uh, talk and, and toxic too, right, that um, that this this sort of expectation around uh, long work days and sacrificing family and health and friendship and hobbies and whatever else you're doing in your life that that that's somehow the right thing and that that we should worship that it still exists
0: yeah yeah and I, the whole, the whole gary b gary V's persona i don't think is a healthy one i don't think it's a healthy representation of the business world and i i don't see how he does it actually, like how he's functioning.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I I think that there's definitely a significant problem in the entrepreneurial world in general to point to a few very unusual outliers as the rule rather than the exception. Yes. Um, you know, this happens with like Elon Musk, who seems to have a lot of psychoses and neuroses and like, um, I don't think anyone should ever operate the way he does, the fact that he has been able to build some companies that have done some interesting technology things and some interesting financial things, okay, that's fine. That does not take away from the fact that he's not a human being to emulate, right? Um, you can be impressed with things people had built, and not impressed with the person. That is that is absolutely okay.
0: Right, the persona with, um, you know, sitting there with the, Ten BMW Jags in the back, in front of the mansion on the cliff, and you know, and just it's like, okay, really? Like, did you rent everything for this for today, or is like, are we are we watching a Saturday Night Live? Like, right someone was
1: talking to me about how um, one of the top goals, so you know, it, uh, influencers in sort of the uh, Instagram world were asked, like, what are their big goals for you know the next year and. I think one of the top answers given was, um, "Have a photo of me taken inside a private jet,"
0: mm-hmm. and I. Right, <laughs> I couldn't quite. I
1: don't, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, maybe I'm just not young enough anymore. <laughs> like, I have I aged out. What happened?
0: Um, I I don't think so. I think it's just a crazy little like. I don't know, this is, it's not sustainable type of thing. But speaking of influencer marketing, I wanted to get your opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah, so what do you you think? Is influencer marketing the new PR? Is it here to stay? Is it going to be saturated?
1: Uh, Let's see. I think it really depends, Lisa, on what we mean when we say influencer marketing. So, you know, if if we're talking, a a few years ago, if you and I were having a conversation about influencer marketing, the definition of that would have been Find the publications, people, sources of influence of all kinds that reach your audience and go do marketing of all kinds in those places. Great, right? Like, let me go build influence with my audience in places and on platforms where they already pay attention. That's super smart. Today, influencer marketing has come to mean pay half-naked people $500 to pose with your product on Instagram. That is extremely tactical probably works for only a few consumer businesses and even then uh I'm skeptical about it I I don't think this version has a uh long term future as a as a high investment worthy strategy for most businesses I think this version ha- absolutely has a great future it just doesn't have a name anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no word that means oh, let's go find the podcasts that my audience is listening to and the YouTube channels they subscribe to and the webinars they attend and the events that they go to and the publications they read. And then we'll go do whatever, all kinds of paid and organic marketing of all kinds in those places. There's, we don't have a word for that anymore. That probably hurts the investment in it. Um, but yeah, this well, we have a word for, so this gets the investment.
0: Yeah, we could, we could call that digital PR.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely, digital uh, yeah. PR is, is,
0: a great,
1: is a great term that, that is encompassing enough, I, yes. I like
0: that. Yeah, what are some of your favorite, um, favorite things about today's modernized digital PR that you think really work? That I, I mean, one things- thing,
1: yeah, one thing I love about digital PR is the folks that I've seen uh, make those investments um, think about both the brand and creative impact and the direct uh, response conversion impact, and that combination is super powerful right if you say hey we 're going to bias uh, consumer behavior or or um, uh, you know a group 's behavior an audience's behavior to be to have a preference for your brand to know you like you trust you, follow you super smart, and we will also take them all the way through to you know, essentially the top middle of your funnel into that uh, first visit to your website or follow of your social accounts or hopefully an email address sign up because an email address is so much more valuable uh, and maybe even to purchase behavior, right? So I I think digital PR, the fact that it spans the top and middle of the funnel that way and it thinks about both of those things, um, makes those investments that way, That that to my mind is... Uh, brilliant, brilliant marketing. And we use it ourselves. Like the number one channel that SparkToro uses is essentially digital PR, right? We go to other people's platforms. I, I mean, mostly me because Casey is pretty much mostly coding, <laughs> right? But like I go on shows like yours and and do podcasts and interviews and webinars and AMAs and, you know, contribute articles and, and um, uh, write blog posts, right? And all these kinds of things. And that builds this, audience who then is like, Oh, I wonder what this Spark Toro thing is. Well, let me go there and I'll try it out for free and see, you know, if I get value from it, then maybe I'll buy it. That's how we get almost all of our uh, free, you know, forever free plan users and, and our paid subscribers. It's great. Right. Very different strategy than what I did at Moz. It's not, you know, content and SEO. It's really other people's platforms, digital PR.
0: And I want to talk about spark tour. I want to hear how we can use it. I just have one more question. And, and I loved what you said about, I, I think the biggest misconception, what the challenge that we run into with clients is that they really don't see PR as the top of funnel, middle of funnel. They want it. They're looking at it like, you know, what's going to be the ROI on sales. What's going to be, and it's, it's really, it could influence the bottom of funnel, but it's, what you said was so perfect. If we could just like expand on it, just a tiny bit more that PR is also not something that it's like, Oh, we're, we're just going to test it out for a month or two and see what happens. Like it's not an ad campaign. It's a forever thing. That's going to, it's going to bring you so much value. You can't even put a price on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is, this is fundamentally right at the core of, so the, the way that I always pitch this type of investment to people who are skeptical brands or CEOs or executives A lot of startup founders are very skeptical about this. The way I pitch it is two things. One, um, in order to be successful at the bottom of your funnel, you need people to already know you, like you and trust you. If somebody sees your ad for the first time and they've never heard of your company and they don't have an association with you, they have no history, you are gonna be judged along a very different set of cognitive metrics than if someone is already familiar with you and sees your brand. And so the idea with digital PR is essentially to nudge that behavior, to create that know-you-like-you-trust-you imprint in someone's, you know, thinking process, cognitive process, so that all the rest of your marketing that operates at that bottom of funnel, whether that's digital advertising or SEO and ranking in search engines or social media marketing and, you know, getting followed and having links in your your, uh, social content, email marketing, right, where you send a newsletter, whatever it is. All of those things are going to get a lift from brand recognition, brand trust, uh, brand familiarity. That that relationship has to be deepened and strengthened to a larger group of potential customers and the influencers of those potential customers if you wanna have a successful funnel. Otherwise, you're you're always eking out the highest cost to get any kind of return And your competitors who make those investments will be able to do a better job. And that, that's the second piece. When I have to convince people that this works, I show them their competitors doing it. I show them their competitors, right? Building that successful flywheel because people know them and like them and trust them. That's why their digital ads work so well. That's why they get high ROI on email. That's why they get high ROI on social and on SEO because they've created a brand preference. How are you gonna do that unless people have heard of you? And how are you gonna get people to hear of you unless you are willing to go to their sources of influence and participate? So look, digital PR, I think it has a very bright future ahead of it if brands can get over this obsession with bottom of funnel and with essentially low ROI, high cost investments.
0: Yeah, and I'm gonna give you a little bit of credit here. So you did actually do a very good job of this at Moz you were basically the, the personality behind Moz. You went, you were speaking at conferences, you did your whiteboard Fridays, you did, you know, a lot of other things that you built up Moz. And you also built up your personal name, your personal brand. And that's why SparkToro, somebody sees, oh, Rand is behind SparkToro. Of course, like, no question. I Sign me up right now. Yeah, so, yeah. I, you know,
1: I think that, th- so this is one of the values of a personal brand is it can transition between companies. Um, and I certainly... You know, I I have my own sort of hang-ups around the fact that I have and have built a personal brand because it I don't know, it doesn't feel entirely authentic. Somehow it feels corporate-y or manipulative but I, at the same time, I I also am extremely grateful for the fact that I have that brand and that SparkToro can sort of benefit from people who maybe po- had a positive history with me previously. But, you know, I think this is this is part of the challenge is When I left Moz, you know, I was kind of starting fresh again and had to create, the word SparkToro didn't exist. Mm -hmm. No one had heard of it because as of whatever it was, February, was that uh, February? No, March, March 1st, 2018, right? The day after I left Moz, there were zero results for SparkToro. Like it it didn't exist at all in Google. And so, yeah, you have to build up that brand recognition and it takes a few years. Like it, it takes time. There's no doubt about it. So you are absolutely right, Lisa. You can't, you can't go to a startup founder, to an exec, to a to a, a team, right, a, a VP of marketing, and say, "Hey, we're going to invest in digital PR for a couple months." What are mm-hmm. you? What are you talking mm-hmm. about? Just right? go buy Facebook ads if you're going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> go, b- go you buy get. your Facebook ads and give Zuckerberg more money, right? Yes, like, yes. But, well, tell us don't, about don't,
0: SparkToro. Like, Tell Tell us about how how can pr professionals digital marketers benefit use it who's your who's your perfect audience
1: yeah uh, uh digital pr is number 1 on our list of of uh uses and use cases and and users um and that is that's no surprise right because what sparktoro does is essentially um tell you in a few seconds what any audience any any describable audience reads watches listens to engages with follows Uh, shares online. So if you want to know what um, landscape architects in Canada are uh, subscribing to on YouTube, if you want to know what people who use the IBM cloud uh, are, what, what social accounts they follow so that you could do either Digital advertising or, or PR or outreach to them. If you want to know which publications are popular with an audience, you want to know what podcasts they're listening to, SparkToro can tell you that. And we, we get that data just by uh, crawling public social and web pages and then connecting those up. And it's, it's the simplest thing in the world. It's not, uh, there's no AI, there's no machine learning. It's just. Really? Nope. None of that. Right. Ah, it's just like, okay. here's 6,000 uh, landscape architects in Canada and 12% of them um, have engaged with this account that's connected to this podcast. So, twelve, you know, so we show 12% have engaged with this podcast in the last. I
0: think, was that months. what I was, ser- I think that's what I was searching for in there. Yeah. there, there I, you are. Yeah, I was also searching for, because this is a hard industry. Um, the CBD industry is very tough right now. And I have clients in that industry. Nope. Nope paid advertising on Google or Facebook. So it's all organic. So yeah, looking at um, as that as an example of, you know, kind of matching up like what people are, who's reading what and.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, it's really interesting when you get these restrictive industries. So some folks have been using um, SparkToro in healthcare sorts of fields um, where there's restrictions on advertising and information and content marketing and Y- yada, yada. And SEO is extremely difficult because Google sort of prioritizes a few, just a few big websites for almost all of that. And so folks look for like, oh, okay, how do we reach whatever healthcare professionals um, who help people with this particular kind of treatment or, or medication or whatever it is. And like, uh, I was talking to someone the other day who's fascinating job. They help. Um, they help with the logistics of distributing vaccines. And so, obviously, like right now, you know, they they're just getting flooded, and all these governments around the world, all these all these you know wealthy people are like, hey, will you make sure that my region, my country gets you know this this distribution? And so they were trying to figure out how do we reach uh, logistics professionals in the vaccine world in the medical industry. I was like, oh well, let's see if SparkToro can help. And sure enough, like it was a small audience, maybe like. A few hundred to a couple thousand uh, profiles that we had in that field, but you know, here's all the sources that reach them, and like it was a good enough sample. It helped them uh, prioritize their their marketing efforts. So, yeah, I love that stuff.
0: Well, we are going to check out SparkToro. I know that we're kind of running out of time right now, oh, but cool. Rand, this has been an amazing conversation. I mean, I think yeah. we touched all kinds of topics here. I was um, really, I was. I don't know, mixed emotions, reading your blog post this week about leaving the board of, of Moz. And I was like, kind of like, Oh, like reading, I was like, Oh, what does Sarah think of this at Moz? Like, I don't know. Um, Yeah. I I was
1: like, I don't know that she, she probably didn't love the blog post, but I hope, yeah, I hope she,
0: uh, it was very transparent, very transparent. And, you know, I, it really hit home to me, I'm sure other entrepreneurs, you know, when you start a business and you get partners or, you know, somebody else takes over as, you know, president and CEO. And you're kind of on the, you're trying to keep everybody happy. And you're like, wait a second, where did this start? And then things kind of fall apart. So I think, you know, it definitely hit home to me and I was always grateful that you are so transparent and so generous with your, your experience and motivates people and makes them feel like they're not alone. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, Yeah, it was, it was, uh, a, an easy move to make. I don't know why we hadn't done it earlier, but I'm, I'm really glad to uh, have that obligation off of my shoulders and have some, I think, far more talented folks that I I, I hope Maz will listen to uh, in Tar Reid and, and Asia Orangio, who, uh, who I just think the world of.
0: Yeah, well, you created space in your life for opportunity by kind of taking that out of your life and see what happens yeah. next.
1: Yeah, I hope I get to... Uh, double down, focus on SparkToro, make it better for, um, well, for folks like yourself, right? I would love to to see a world where people feel like they can take some of their marketing dollars and efforts away from Facebook and Google and put them toward small publishers and community builders and yeah.
0: So tell us where where we can find out more about SparkToro, if you have any specials or if you have any downloads or any events or anything.
1: Yeah, so we have a forever free plan that, um, that folks can get, it's if you go to sparktoro.com um, and just start searching, uh, you'll be prompted to, to register and then you'll, you'll be on the forever free plan which is essentially 10 searches a month uh, to infinity. So yeah, uh, please feel free to give it a try. We'd love to hear what you think. And um, if you wanna follow me, uh, I am most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish.
0: Great. Well, we will follow you and we'll follow, follow Spark Toro, And we will sign up. And I can't wait to do more searches and find out more connections that I can make. So thank you so much, Rand. And thank you for being on the 100th episode of Social PR Secrets.
1: Oh my gosh. Mazel tov. Congratulations, yes. Lisa.
0: Thank you. Thank you.